for early. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make extra meatballs. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can get me home by 8. I've got to do this for the good in itself, not because I'm being bribed. <laughs> Come on, I know you are. Come on. Any any prayer requests? Any prayer requests? We've got a couple. Um, lots my going my on. Brother out there, my brother-in-law out there again. I'll throw my brother-in-law out there again. Say his name. Paul. Oh, what's going on? <clears throat> He's got some kind of a chemical imbalance that he's he's in a wheelchair and he has to use a walker now. How old is he? He's a vet that's had what is he? S almost 70? 70? Mm -hmm. Yeah, about 70. I remember everybody. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us. Um, some of us, I know, certainly Suzanne and I, miss the Mass. Um, we know you're present always anyway. Um, for all the ways you offer yourself to us, for all the ways you call us to you, um, asking us to do your will, um, thank you for all the ways you strengthen us to do that. Um, uh, I want to ask a special blessing on this group. I'll, I'll come to it in a second. You've called us to holiness, um, not just to come to church, say rosaries. Um, you ask us to give our lives to you um, in a culture that has turned its back on you. It takes some courage and humility to do that, to be whole. It's much easier to just move along. Strengthen us, please, all of us. Help us that in all that we're doing with this work, that we take it seriously, that we learn, we have the courage to see ourselves as we are. <coughs> What's the value of this work if we don't do that? Hard to do it when we're moving through hell. Um, help us to find ourselves there. Uh, not be afraid, trusting in you. <coughs> Learning to see ourselves as we are um, asks of us a greater trust, a greater faith. Let it be so for all of us, all of us. Help us all to grow whole in your spirit and bring you to all that we do. Ask a special um, grace on Paul. Um, watch over him in his ailment. Um, help the doctors um, get clear in what's wrong and see if they can prescribe a remedy. And if not, console him. Um, um, let this be a time of making his peace. Most of us in here are not young anymore. Um, help all of us, help all of us um, to get ready to leave this world. Most of us here are not young. Um, help us not to take for granted our last years, to do all that we can to get ready, hopefully to be with you. Watch over, Paul. And, um, let the occasion of his difficulties um, help those who care for him, who love him, be strengthened in their own faith. Um, ask for um, plus, um, a blessing on uh, Perfecto and Mary. Um, help keep his heart, her heart, quiet um, during this period of searching for work. 
um, help doors open for him. Come on, Tracy. Um, who am I forgetting in the group stock? Anybody? Um, sorry, but coming. Ah, Madison and Tracy. Um, watch over that young woman. Um, she has so few of the advantages that a lot of kids grow up with today in America. Um, much harder in kids if they don't have a background to help them because they feel so much is owed to them and they get angry um, when they don't receive it. Help her, surround her with your protection. Most of all, um, let Tracy know that um, nobody knows that girl the way you do. Um, and nobody's love is as complete as yours. If anybody's doing anything, you are. Um, let Tracy be consoled in that and all the, sh uh, the efforts that she makes to help her. Let it be so for all of us too, particularly parents when our kids are struggling or we're struggling with them mm -hmm. ongoing. Um, for all the sorrows that we carry in our hearts, um, all the um, Thanksgiving, the occasions that um, that um, leave us thankful for what's going on, um, we're grateful for all of these. Um, offer these to you um, in um, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. I've got a. I'm sorry, Mark's not here because I. He's in the parking lot. Is he? Yeah, he's on a phone call. <clears throat> we weren't pressed. I'd open the window and shout at him and tell him to get in here where he belongs. I'm going to wait a minute on this. I I, I want to speak to this thing of holiness and poetry, um, <laughs> but I'm going to wait for Mark. Um, very very quick review. Very quick. Uh, oh, oh, no. Um, does everybody have a copy of Soliloquy in the mm -hmm. Spanish voice? Mm -hmm. Where's the stamp? Uh, does everybody get a copy? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't get you. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't have an author to it, does it? It's Browning. Oh, Browning. Okay. <clears throat> Let's do this quick. Um, a couple of weeks ago, remember I read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. We broke it up into two meetings um, because I wanted you to realize how alive Dante is for some people. Absolutely alive for Eliot. Eliot, um, Eliot carried Dante with him and and shaped his way of thinking. It's one of the it's one of the reasons I think Eliot was such a great poet. One of the sort of precepts he came up with in the middle of his life, it's a, it's a famous essay called Tradition and the Individual Talent. In that essay, Eliot says that um, if we don't read with the past in us, there's no way we're going to understand the present. None. And he looked at poetry as forming what he called a simultaneous body of knowledge. Now, I want to underscore that for a second in this sense. We, we know that the sciences um, ha, um, have an accretional character. I don't know how else to say it, accretional. 
they move forward, leaving the past behind. Every old construct is put away and replaced by a new one. Okay? The Ptolemaic system was replaced by the Copernican. Copernican was replaced by the Einsteinian or, you know. Science tends to leave the past behind. It doesn't carry it forward because it replaces things because of their mistakes, earlier models because of their mistakes. Ptolemy um, did an amazing job in, in giving us a scheme of the universe, but Copernicus straightened it out. He said there's some faults in it. And you, I think most of you know how um, world-shaking those discoveries were. This is the 16th, 17th century Renaissance. When Copernicus came up with those discoveries, it was not a, a small thing because what he did by presenting that theory to us was show that all earlier theories were false, wrong, and the authorities that were that rested on them were wrong, i.e. the church. So because the church accepted that world view, that world picture, the, the church came under scrutiny. It, it was a period of tremendous skepticism when everybody was questioning what's truth and what's reality. That was the Renaissance. That's why it's such a vigorous, energetic time, because people were forced to question metaphysical principles everywhere. They couldn't take them for granted. The world changed. Same thing happened with Darwin and Einstein in our period. Um, so science is accretional. It, it tends to move forward, leaving things behind. Literature is not. Literature always carries the past forward. If you say you've read James, James Joyce's Ulysses, which is modeled on Homer's The Odyssey, and you've not read The Odyssey, you will not understand James Joyce. If you read Shakespeare, I'm going to just you know, out of the hand here. If you read Shakespeare's Midsummer Dream, I think we did that. If you read, we're going to do it here when we do Chaucer. If you've read Shakespeare's Midsummer Dream, and you've not read the Theseus stories or Chaucer, you, you, there are things about Shakespeare you won't understand. All of those great writers, Shakespeare, Dante, Virgil, every one of them incorporated the past into their poetry, kept it alive and moving forward. It's a very, very different way of knowing because what it produces is, is this sense that we're not only in the present moment, something of the past is present in the present moment. Okay? Let me see if I can give a... Those of you who did Faulkner would know that. Go down Moses. Um, what are we doing right now? Dante. Perfect example. Who's Dante's guide? Virgil. Virgil. The Aeneid is everywhere in that poem. Can you see it? Not explicitly, but it's there. So poetry places us in this strange time. It's like, it's like what I said last week about the Eucharist. When we take the Eucharist and walk out of here, where are we? This is that still point idea that I'm trying to leave with you. When we take the Eucharist, where are we? When we walk out of the church into the parking lot, we can say, I'm on my way home. But if you've taken the Eucharist, our faith places us in God's kingdom. Who can see that? If a stranger passed us by on the road and saw us, would they have any notion of anything but a person walking to a car to go home? You're all following me, yeah? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the reason I'm, Eliot does this, remember I read these lines, the dance, um, it's to place it in time, now or after, I don't know, because I can't do that. It's only the, the dance, and where the dance is, I can't tell you. It's, it's what's called apophatic knowledge. 
we know by negations. There are things we just don't know. It's a very important tradition in the Catholic tradition, apophatic knowledge. It's the, it's the knowledge of the saints. So poetry has that element. When we look at a Picasso, I've got the Don Quixote Picasso in my study at home. Can you understand that without reading Cervantes? Because the hero of Cervantes is Don Quixote. But what Picasso does with him is strange. So anybody looking at that painting should feel we're somewhere between Cervantes' Don Quixote and Picasso. Well, where is that? Where's that space? Where's that time? Are you all following me? Mm-hmm. I know this probably sounds really mystical, but you all following? Mm-hmm. Okay. So poetry, <laughs> Mark, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> poetry always returns us to the natural order, the concrete world. You know, it's it's we're returned to the world as we know. We're not in ideas. We're not in philosophy. We're not in theology. We're back in the concrete world, where where we spend the greater part of our lives. But it takes us back to this strange place. We're there and not there. So poetry always leads us in, in our present, here we are, but aware that, that we're carrying something else in it. Okay? Mark, would you hurry up? Is that guy? Um, we're going to go ahead with no. We're going to go ahead. So here's my concern. It's just. I've been saying this all along, poetry's prophet, or great poetry has a prophetic element. It helps us to see things about ourselves that very often we don't want to see. To the degree that we can learn to see that, we have a help in changing ourselves to make ourselves better. Christ's call is that we become holy. How much encouragement do we have from our world to become holy? The world wants us to conform to it to do it as it wants. Christ wants us to renounce the world, step out. So, and one of the reasons this is so important for me, you know, when we go to Mass often, Father Flynn sometimes went through periods where he did it almost daily. His homilies were um, were addressing the saint of that day. He would speak about the saint and what the saint did and what what he or she's known for. It's, it's always been a... This, you're going to get something personal for me. You may want to run me out of here after this. It's been a source of troubling for me in my life. Um, so certainly in, in the older years, like the more mature years of um, ducks and my life together. When we hear about the saints, they're almost always priests or women from orders. You know? And no wonder they devote their lives to Christ. There's no division. If you're a priest, you spend half, half you have to spend half your time worrying about your wife. Um, a priest doesn't marry because it allows him to devote his life completely to Christ, and so so too for sisters. I think families get short shrift on this. Father has talked for the five years that he was here. He said it, it really should be an aim of everyone is to save somebody's soul. And we did that, there was always a sense in my mind that he was talking about missionary work, that we go out of the church, you know, to help save somebody. My response in my own head, I think Father and I have had lots of long talks together. I'm going to miss our talks together because there isn't anything we didn't talk about. One of my concerns is I don't think families get the credit they they should because they're, they're covered up, they're hidden to the world. We don't see them. 
But um, it's a serious question, how much of what goes on in our own struggles within our own families to help our children or each other be saved? That's We go to church and we're saved. Mm, I don't know. Um, so it, what, I, what I think I'm doing here is, for me, the poetry just isn't poetry. You know that. In whatever way it helps us to see ourselves, in whatever way we can take more seriously what Christ is asking, we should take more seriously our efforts to be whole. And that means in our families, even if that means problems. A prophet's not known in his own hometown. How many prophetic moments get missed in a family because a father speaks them, or a mother, or even a child? You know, that I think so much more goes on in a family than very often we see. One of the reasons I do these lyric poems, I, I mean, I, you know that I love that supernatural poem. You've got a mother looking back to a moment when she was four years old. Nothing happens. She pricks her finger. So what? If you look at that poem again through her eyes, you're seeing that child's participating in the crucifixion, whether anybody around would have seen it or not. Do we have eyes to see that in our own families? I'm saying no. One of the reasons for reading this literature is to help deepen our sight, to open our hearts, to give greater depth to our minds, to what we see and feel. So part of what was behind my prayer tonight was um, that I hope all of us are strengthening that by what we're doing together. Um, Suzanne and I value what, what we're doing. I cannot tell you what a pleasure it is to constantly see your faces wish more Mark were here because I'd say even yours <laughs> he's not here he's, you know that I'm not going to lose the chance to heap coals on anybody <laughs> I, I do it most of all in my family um, anyway I hope you know that um, we are grateful for the friendship and the time that we spent together I hope that's something we can take up together to pray for each other to help each other in that regard um, okay so proof rock the interesting thing about Proofrock is, as far as we know, he's he's done nothing along the lines of a mortal sin. He's not killed anybody. I don't know that he's committing adultery. And yet it's quite clear that man is damned. He is so absolutely self-absorbed in himself. There, there's no sense that he can come out of it. The last lines is, um, and human voices wake us and we drown. When he's in contact with something human, that life that he's created for himself, gone. So what Eliot's doing in Proof Rock is showing us, like the damned in hell, you don't always have to be committing a moral sin to put your soul in jeopardy. That in the modern world, because the modern world has taken away final ends, the modern world knows nothing about final ends. They don't, heaven and hell are out of the picture. So everything about the modern world conduces us towards a kind of mediocrity, just to go along, you know, be glad with what you've got and be satisfied. Live for the day. Huh? Live for the day. Yeah, God, yeah. Ooh, I don't want to go there. Our neighbor, and, and the reason I'm saying that is, I don't want to go there. Don't. That's, yeah, good. The, the, the Epicurean philosophy, St. Augustine believed, that is, eat, drink, and be merry now, for there is no tomorrow. Um, that Epicurean philosophy, it didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. Augustine, we believe, brought down Rome. I believe it's bringing down America. We so live for our pleasures today. And so, 
proof rocks in that world, okay? Um, Eliot's presenting us for the first time in the Lear tradition um, a poem about a love song. Its focus is love, and yet everything about it is absolutely ironic. Prufrock couldn't be farther away from love, offering himself to another, coming out of his world for another. It's not a part of his world. He, he lives absorbed in his own world. So, We talked about the Trinity, and I, t- I think I told everybody, remember the, 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 if we're made in God's image, and God is a trinity of persons, then it's impossible, impossible to think about God except in terms of a love going out and being returned. Love and being loved is at the core of the trinity. Right? So the notion that we can live in our private selves couldn't be more contrary to the notion of who we are if we believe we were created in God's image and our God is a trinitarian God. Um, and I went through a number of qualities of, of the Trinity and gave you some arguments. I'm, I'm going to review them in a second. But I mentioned this this line in St. Thomas that to me shows how profound a thinker he was. In, in, a, in the section that he did on the Trinity, and I think it's in the Summa, he says this. Um, now remember, our tendency when we think about the Trinity and generation is to see it in human terms. A man and a woman get married, they conceive and have a child. That child has a body. A new life comes out of it. The, our, our creed is very specific about this. Christ was not made. He was not created. He was begotten. Begotten, not made. It's the creed's way of showing we can't understand the Trinity if, if our analogy is the human couple. And, and, and human generation. Okay? St. Thomas says this about the Trinity. One is part of two. Right? There's three things here. One, two, three. Right? One is part of two. They're two different things. Is, is one equal to the two? No, it's less than. Because two is greater than one. Right? And two is part of three. It's part do the two constitute a whole of that three? No, it's only a part. Because we're thinking in material terms. Right? One is a part of two, two of three, as one man's a part of two men, and two men of three. But it's not this way with God. For the Father is as much as the whole trinity, he uses the Latin, quia tantus et pater quanta tota trinitas. The Father is of the same magnitude as the whole Trinity. If they're one and indwelling in each other, how can it be otherwise? Now I'm assuming everybody right now is blinking. <laughs> because we, we, tend to, we tend to materialize immaterial concepts. We put them in a box. Mm-hmm. There are three persons. What Thomas is saying is that the Father is as much as the whole of the Trinity, even though he's one because they are one, perfectly one with each other. And I hope everybody's seeing that, because what he's doing is showing us that our physical categories are inadequate to describe metaphysical realities. But I want you to hold on to that notion, because otherwise what you're doing is, is looking at the Trinity in material terms, in earthly terms, and we can't. So 
the Father is whole, he's one with the Trinity, so is the Son and Holy Spirit. When the Father conceives himself, he conceives the Son. It's one with him, he's begotten. He's the image of the Father. The love between the two of them is a person, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's this amazing unity that is, that is our God um, who made us. And we were called into that unity, which means for us, it's in our nature to love another, to be one with that person, and to be loved by that person, and be one together. You know, this, the church talks about this notion, one flesh. I think everybody sort of laughs it off. But I think that's our call. Who understands that today in our culture? When people talk about marriage today, it's, I mean, who of us growing up? I mean, it couldn't have been farther away from Suzanne and I. Um, I mean, <laughs> we were much more stupid then than we are now. We used to fight a lot more then than we do now. Um, which of us, I mean, who, who is raised with this stuff today? You know, when you're younger. So this notion of the Trinity is not an arbitrary thing. Dante's Commedia is, is informed by it. It informs every aspect of the poem. Okay? Um, it's in the Canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso. Each one of the Canticles is divided into three. The Terzarima, to me, is the most perfect example of the Trinity because it's the same um, triform stanza, ABA, but always moving forward, still and in motion, S still not moving and moving. Okay, ABA, BCB, CDC, EF, you know, it goes on and on. Same stanza, always changing. So in its dynamic, it, in some ways it, 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 it hints at the nature of the Trinity itself. Okay? We're going to see that when we go forward in the, in the Purgatorio. Quickly now, um, the arguments that I gave for God's existence last week, um, the argument from motion, the argument from contingency. Nothing, said in, nothing can move that isn't moved by something before it. Push a chair, it'll fall over, right? Um, start the car and hit another car, that car goes in motion. Hit a cue ball into another, okay? No motion can be explained except in terms of something that put it into motion. If that's our source, of, if that's our means of explaining something, we're caught in an infinite regress because we'll go back forever, which means we'll never finally be able to explain it. That's what an infinite regress is. To have any explanation of motion, we have to go back to a, something that in itself was not moved. We call that God, the unmoved mover. Nothing created him, nothing put him into motion. If it did, it would mean it would be something greater than God. But God is that greater than which nothing is. He's the greatest thing there is. That's the that's, that's St. Thomas's argument for motion. The argument from contingency is the same thing. Everything in the world is contingent. It depends on something else. Every one of us here, we didn't bring ourselves into... By the way, that's Satan's argument. If you remember Milton, he denied that God created him. In that argument that he had with Abdiel... Um, he, he acted as if he created himself. The modern world, be whatever you want to be. Create yourself. There's no God. You can make of yourself whatever you want. The argument of contingency is everything 
in the world is contingent upon something else. Where, If that's so, to explain every other contingency, we have to call in other contingencies before that. And we're back in an infinite regress, you know? It'll go back, the clouds in the sky were, um, were produced there because of a disparity between the air temperature and the sky and the earth or winds or you know whatever the conditions were well what what created those conditions you know you keep going back so once again unless we're to be caught in an infinite regress again we have to begin with something that in itself is not contingent we call that thing God he's not contingent he's not dependent on anything before him okay and I mentioned the irony of the Big Bang, I think. The, the irony is that God just stuns me. Most scientists think about the Big Bang as if it's an explanation of the world. The Big Bang is a, is a matter of chance. Who can explain it? It's a contingent thing. It's chance. Where did it come from? What produced it? They will always come up with theories. I know. Lots of priests. Well, I, but, but Be careful somebody, of priests. Is somebody all else theoretically, then they got the credit. But, but, yeah, somebody in the Everybody's theory. The, po the point, honestly, science cannot prove beginnings, where things came from. They're caught in a contingent world. The, the question is, how large is the perspective they use to explain something? The only thing I wanted to, I mean, to land on this Big Bang for a second, I don't want to labor this, but the Big Bang is a chance occurrence, it's a chance event, they can't explain it. Which means that science's efforts to explain the beginning of things is a myth. Now you know I love myths. I go back to, the, well I do, I mean if you go back to the Greek world. I also believe that there's more intelligence in the ancient myths than there are in lots of modern myths, but I just wanted you to give some thought to that. When we're thinking about God and his nature, um, it's, it's important to think about these things. What, one of the things that we're doing together, hopefully, is strengthening our powers of reason so when we go out to the world, we can give a defense of our faith. We understand better what, we're, what our faith um, rests on. I want to add one. So I gave two arguments for the existence of God. I wanted to add another notion here that St. Thomas and Aristotle, Boethius, Dante would have all learned. Dante is going to make it clear. Remember, God's the still point. He's the unmoved mover. He's at the center of everything. That's why I took all those examples from Elliot last week. There's a still point in the jar, in the music, in the dance, the stairway, all of it. The still point exists everywhere. When Dante is at the Prima Mobile, looking back at the earth, he sees a still point. It's moving so fast it's standing still. That's God. He's at the center of everything. Remember I gave you Boethius' argument. The closer that we are to the periphery, the, circum the circumference of the circle, the closer we are to the circumference of that circle, the more caught up we are in things that are determined. We're trapped in them. And all of us periodically become aware of that and we make efforts to step away. We say, enough, enough. Just we have to get out of that hectic, driven world to recover some peace. The closer we approach that still point of the center, the more we share in the peace of God. Yeah? 
And I said that's one of the definitions of hell. The closer you are to the circumference, the more, the less free, the more caught up you are. The more you desire something, the more you're caught up in that world. So it's a hectic, frenetic, electric world. The last thing you can say about it is that it gives, it leaves us in peace. What's hell? That world. Hell is a place of fruitless motion. They're constantly doing the same thing, going nowhere. They will never know a rest. They desired something, that's what they want, that's what they get. So that now, that anxious now, I want this. I hate those who got in the way. I will do this to those who keep, you know, all that goes on in hell. That defines their lives. That now <coughs> is fixed. They chose it. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. So when we went through hell, we saw various degrees of sinfulness. Because we moved from the surface to the center, we saw that things are far more terrifying, far more nightmarish, um, our nature far more disfigured. We saw the effects of our sins. Okay. Um, Oh, so God is at the center, the still point, and he's um, the source, the ruler of first causes. You'll see when we get into the Paradiso that, um, that the laws in heaven are different from laws as we know them here. It says, where God rules immediately... Listen to that phrase. Where God rules immediately, the rules of time and space as we know them do not apply. Where God rules immediately, the laws as we know them don't apply. I'm getting ahead, but let me flush this out because I want you to see it. So in heaven, for example, if somebody is here, if I'm here, hopefully, if I'm here and Suzanne is a mil in earthly terms, Suzanne is a million miles away in heaven, She's not less clear than if she were right here present to me. Because the laws of time and space don't apply. You know that in earthly conditions, if somebody's two blocks away, we may not be able to make out who they are. Time and space doesn't, those laws of time and space don't apply in heaven. We're all immediately present to each other in the presence of God. So he's the still point. So where, where he is, um, he's the source of all first causes. Because he's the first cause of everything. The world as we know it is a world of secondary causes. It's a world of contingencies. It's God's way, this is crucial, it's God's way of protecting our free will. Because otherwise he'd be, he'd be determining all of our actions. That's what, the, that's what the Calvinists believe. That everything we do is predetermined. We have no free will. So they will, they will, whatever happens, they'll say, God did it. God did this. It's what he wants. Because they're not making a distinction between first causes and second. Everything that goes on is caused by him. He created a world, a contingent world, as a way of protecting free will. That means what we do, we're responsible for. Very often it means we have to go through trials. Some, somebody may do something we don't like. Because that's their use of their free will. It, it will affect us. We're forced 
to pick that up and do something with it according to our free will. So, and this is Dante. This we're going to get here in, in purgatory. Just a minute. Dante believes absolutely in man's free will. We are responsible for ourselves. Does that mean God can't intervene? Absolutely not. Why would we pray? Miracles take place. But it does mean we live in a world with contingent freedoms. Things happen whether we want them to happen or not. And it means very often we have to bear trials. What, what Stacy's going through with Madison, for me, is a, a really, to me, it's a really good example. She's devoted her life to this young woman for years, struggling with her right now. She's doing things I, I think Tracy would rather wish she didn't do, but how, how much is that true for all of us in our lives, whatever goes on at home, in the family, at work? So it's important to see God, we live in a contingent world. God does not cause things. When you get into an accident, that's the fault of the people involved. Does that mean he can't intervene? No, it does not. But it means, from the works that we've seen, God is really careful in what he does to protect our free wills. He's constantly at work trying to bring good out of evil. It's one of the things he constantly works at. If he's a good guy, you know, this, we're going to see it in Boethius. Um, um, why do good people suffer? Why do evil people prosper? I mean, it seems, if that's true, it would seem God's not a very good God. Well, we've gone through this before. God is a good God. One of the ways he shows his love for us is having given us free will and allowing us to suffer the consequences are for choice because we learn to be more responsible. If we put that off on other people, God did it. It's a way of absolving us of our responsibility and things. But it does mean he can help. He's always at work. Those of you who did the Iliad, you know that. Um, in the Iliad, the gods are everywhere involved in a war story where men are killing each other, right and left. Are we, are we to suppose that in Afghanistan, where men are killing each other every day, our God is not there? Absolutely not. He is there. Does that mean men are not going to kill each other? No, it doesn't. I mean, people are going to do bad things. People are going to do good things. It means we've been gifted with this great thing called free will. And we lost it in the fall, and the whole premise of Dante's journey is we cannot get back to God without his help. What about repentance? Is, is that ever going to come in? We're going right there. Okay, because right there. well, what about Calvinists? They don't believe in repentance, so you can change your faith because it's, they don't believe that. I get lost in that. Susan, oh, okay. Susan, no, no, I mean, it's, <laughs> no, I'm just saying that. It's yeah. Suzanne's. When we were doing the um, Milton stuff, when we were doing the Reformers, mm -hmm. and we were talking about it one night, and I was putting out the the Calvinistic premises, you know, that things are predetermined. And mm -hmm. her first her first response was, what did you say? What's the point of it? You know, what's the point of it? I mean, right. repentance, all of it seems, what's the point? Right. I see, one of the difficult, I don't, I, I, to me, that philosophy is inhuman. I just have so much trouble with it. I'm assuming that a Calvinist would say, I'm trying to take their part now. I'm assuming that a Calvinist would say, um, your willingness to pick up penance and do something in your part is the proof that you're working with God, but he's the one who's doing it. I'm assuming that's what they would oh, say. Oh, I gotcha. That's, a, that's an interesting point of view on that. But Let's, I'm, I'm going to pick this up. Yeah, I'm going to pick this up with, um, when we, at, at the start of Purgatory. So. Okay.
Go ahead, fast. Well, I just, so in heaven, if God has a thought, everybody hears a thought. It, 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 the thought in God's head transcends itself to everybody in heaven. When you, tell, you talked about space and time. So right. if somebody's a thousand miles away, he has a thought, he or she has a thought, right. that person's a thousand miles away. Yeah. Right. Okay. Except remember, there's no thousand miles away in heaven. Yeah, that's true. Right. Right. So that was my way of yeah. trying to illustrate something that's really yeah. difficult to look at. Well, there's no time either. I mean, Adam's biting the apple and the last man's being born to God now. We're here now. Eve is offering up the apple now. To him, it's, it's all... It's well, all yeah, to him. Although for us in time, and I'm, I don't know how to deal with that in heaven, but because... Um, to, to look at it that way it's almost a nice death you know, because that past is over Eve's dead, Adam's dead it, it, what our mortal character is real in time what, but we also believe that, that grace perfects nature so whatever we become when we're there is very different from what goes on here okay so we've got all these difficult Notions. The one that I want you to hold on to most is this notion that um, God is the still point. He's at the center of everything. We are in a contingent world. Um, Dante's taken us outside of that world into final ends. Okay? To heaven and hell, in between his purgatory. But heaven and hell are final ends. We're, so he's helping us to see what the final result is of our actions here okay um, okay let's start so this week I want to go back to um, oops so much for Spanish culture for um, cloister I'm gonna go on we will pick up by the way read read it the, the reason I chose it is because you you can see um, Brownie's influence on Elliot because in the Spanish cloister poem and in my last duchess browning is doing with those two figures what elliot was doing with Prufrock. we're looking at two men one of whom is a monk who seems it's pretty clear that he's damned or at least verging on dam damnation um <clears throat> we'll do it next week okay a couple of a couple of questions here and I'm going to get immediately to the text. I want to, I want to look at the last uh, few cantos of the Inferno so we can start the purgatory today. Um, remember, most important thing, Dante's an epic hero, like Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. He's on a journey. And in this journey, he's on his journey home. He tried to get home on his own when he started to climb that mountain. Okay? But he couldn't by himself. A whole order of divine realities was set into motion by Mary going to Lucia, to Beatrice, to Virgil to get him to help. So we're watching the communal nature of heaven at work. The, the soul, no matter what the modern world says, what Dante's saying is the soul is not isolated. It's not an isolated thing. He's not alone. There are all these other people going to work for him, even if he doesn't see them. Okay. And um, remember, Nostos from the Odyssey, from Homer's The Odyssey. The, the Odyssey is about Odysseus's 
homecoming, going home. The word nostos in the Greek means home, home, nostos, home, from which we get nostalgia. nostalgia. Yeah. Looking back to the home we lost, I mean basically the, those attachments we have to those things of the past that we've lost. Except, remember, for Dante, nostos, in the same way it was for Homer, nostos means going back to your home and also forward. Alpha, Omega. In Elliot, in my beginning is my end. In going home, we're going to see in the Paradiso, Dante's going back to beginnings because they're both there. The Alpha and the Omega are one. So one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, has, <laughs> on this journey through hell, because Virgil made it clear, you cannot go up that mountain by yourself. Virgil made it clear, um, he needs help. Has Dante changed at all? Is there any evidence that he's learned from what he's seen? Okay. He doesn't pay people as much. That's where I'm going. Okay. So I want to look, I want to look at a couple of the characters that we didn't deal with last week, and then I want to look specifically at this notion of pity because it becomes even more important at the end and it's led modern critics to make some claims about Dante that I'd like to look at with you guys tonight so so turn to page 152 this is about where we were last week I think we have gone um, this is um Canto 28, 28, sorry. 152, or 20, sorry, 29, no, 28, I guess, 28. Um, this is in the level of the um, Swords of Discord. On 152, in the middle of the page, about line 30 or so. See how Mohammed is deformed and torn in front of me and weeping. Ali walks, his face cleft from his chin up to the crown. The souls that you see passing in this ditch were all sowers of scandal and schism. Now remember, um, Mohammed went back to Ishmael in the Old Testament, who was the outcast one. Remember that outcast race, and it was really clear in the Old Testament, if you go back to that, that section, that God was very protective of Ishmael. He was not the chosen one. Isaac was. We, those of you who did, I'm so sorry you all didn't do this. Those of you who didn't do it, we, when we did this in uh, Faulkner and um, Melville, remember Melville did Ishmael, the Ishmael story, and, uh, and shows one of the ironies about Melville's Ishmael is that he's an outsider in the sense that the, the Christian culture from which he's dissociated himself is in absolute collapse. It's hypocritical, it's dishonest, it's unreal. So when he says, call me Ishmael, he's identifying himself with an outsider to a culture that no longer lives up to its Christian calling. Faulkner did the Isaac story. Those of you who did go down Moses, remember that. He's the Isaac, the, the, the real, real one. And you, those of you who are with you, remember the awful things I can't face. 
This is Mohammed who descends from Ishmael and who had that private revelation and who wrote um, his book based on that private revelation. Nobody was there to confirm it. It was a private revelation. And he wrote down his law. And you know according to that law that Christians are infidels, that they have these horrible beliefs, that Christians assume that there's a, there, God has companions. There's this trinity and son. And Muhammad says, absolutely not. Allah is alone by himself. The Christians are in error. And it's one of the ends of the Quran to do away with the infidel. That's, that's fundamental to the Quran. Even, even the most people don't want to look at that today. But that's basic. That's why Dante's putting him here, because he's schismatic. Um, the, the, degree, the degree of importance of this is great because Muhammad not only denies the Trinity, he denies Christ as God. So there can't be a schism more radical. Absolutely more radical. That's why we are as low as we are here in this level. Um, so he sees Muhammad. Now go on over um, to about page 156. He sees a number of souls who are um, dismembered and ripped and torn apart. And then he comes across this one on this soul on page 156, the shade, Mary, the shade. It spoke, now you see the monstrous punishment, you, you there still breathing, looking at the dead. See if you, can fi you find suffering to equal mine, that you may report on me up there. Know that I am Bertram de Bourne, the one who evilly encouraged the young king, father and son, I said, against each other. Achitophel, with his wicked um, instigations, did not do more with Absalom and David. So, um, um, he, Bourne was a counselor to Henry and encouraged his son to revolt against him. And he's saying that what he did was as great as to encourage what um, David's son did with him. So there's clearly a biblical dimension to this sin. But what follows is, is, is I hope it's memorable for you, because they cut the bonds of those so joined, that is, the Son from the Father, and I'm hoping you'll hear the, the Trinitarian aspect of that. Because I cut the heads of those so joined, I, I bear my head cut off from its life source, which is back there, alas, within its trunk. In me you see the perfect contrapasso. He's holding his head up, and his head is speaking to him when his body is separate from him. So he's saying... And I, the line to me is memorable. This is one of the most perfect contrapasses in the whole of the inferno. It's a dis, it's a, it, it's a, it's a head that's lost its place. Point of question, just point of order. Mm. When we talk, when we first talk about this, Dante is the only one who still has form in his body, and everyone else is quote unquote a shade. So when they're splitting these people open and doing all the horrible things, they're doing them to bodies which no longer exist. So so. If this is a shade, delve into that just a little bit. Say again? Go into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Because, so, 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 I mean, they don't yeah, have no, bodies so, anymore. Right. But, uh, right, right. Does he cast a shadow? I thought we did this, but I'm glad to go over it. Here, one thing I want you to know. This is so crucial. I mean, what the question that Mark's raised goes absolutely, absolutely to the center of our faith. That's how important it is. Absolutely center. Buddhists don't believe this. Hindus don't believe this. For... Other religions, religions other than our own, 
um, the soul goes into the next life and very often loses its individuality, becomes part of a amorphous whole. Because in the Eastern religions, the cause of sins is the uniqueness of a person. In Christianity, the uniqueness of a person is what is one of its great qualities. We believe in the individual, we believe the individual is responsible, things like that. Dante's going to deal with this in the sand of the purgatory. We're going to get there. He's actually going to spend a couple of cantos on it. That's why it's so it's so huge. But let me just say this in response to Mark's question, because it's a good one, and I thought we dealt with it, but a, a parishioner dealt, raised the same question. When Dante goes through the Paradiso, how does he recognize these shades? Because they're bodies. Because, <laughs> according to our belief, from Aristotle to St. Thomas, um... The soul and body are inseparable in our identity. The, the body, hold on to this, the body is what individualizes the soul, gives it its unique identity. Let me make this clear. If you got um, a factory line of buttons, they're all exactly the same, right? Same button, same mold. Or, or money, $1 bills coming off a press, yeah? What's the principle of individuation of those buttons or that money? Take the buttons. What's the principle of individuation? What makes one button different from another when the mold is exactly the same? What it's attached to? Where the material it's made of. What it's made of, the matter, different part of the tree. The body is what individualizes the soul. It gives its unique identity. Thomas wouldn't say the soul is a part of the body get this, Thomas would say the soul encloses it's one with the body, you cannot distinguish them so when Dottie's looking at all these shades even though their bodies are gone their bodies left an imprint How, I mean the shade, the shade doesn't just become this amorphous piece of clay that would be absolutely contrary to everything we believe in Doc and I are humans Valerie's human, even though she makes better meatballs than certainly I do we're all we're right, we're all the same. We're all that's that's why Chester once said, "What we have in common is far more important than what any one any one of us has that distinguishes that person from others." We we are all humans. We all share in this extraordinary dignity that God gave us by creating us. We have an immortal we have an immortal soul in every one of us, but every one of us is absolutely unique, absolutely. So. Um, that individuality is not lost when the soul goes into the next life, even if even if the body's not there, it still carries its imprint. And we've talked about this in what we in the maiming, for example, or the um, the decaying, or the necromancy when the when the souls fade into guck and then come out of it. You know, they're always returning to who they were, even if they don't have a body. Because it can't be otherwise. They are individuals. Remember, when you commit suicide, you can't you can't annihilate being. God brought us into being. We will always be. When the soul goes into the next life, he he takes his identity with him, and all at the center of our belief is all of us will know a greater joy, a greater punishment, at the last end when our bodies are returned to us in the in the the uh, it's called the when the bodies are returned in the last days um, and remember Paul's line when at the, in the uh, 
and, and the transfiguration scene, you know, the glorious body that we all, and Paul saying he was in the third heaven, eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, the glories awaiting. That when the bodies return in the final day of judgment, we will know a greater glory in the body that's given to us because how can it be otherwise? God made us corporeal creatures. We're not angels. Our ultimate fulfillment can't be completed, can't happen without the return of our bodies. That's our belief. I remember telling Father one time, <laughs> I love our talk, he came to me a little bit dismayed one day because he'd just spoken with a mother whose son was, I think, very handicapped, maybe crippled, and she was disheartened by her struggles as a mom. And my response to him was, grace, perfection, nature. I think I've said this to you guys. That, um, that, that not, I mean, I've said this to our daughter-in-law, Emily, who miscarried, that she's got a surprise waiting for her. If grace perfects nature, none of us is going to be left imperfect in heaven. Whoever that child was that was aborted or miscarried, sorry, miscarried, or whatever deformities we have, they won't be there. They can't. Grace perfects nature. That will be our condition. There will be this great glory. That's Paul. That's Christ. That's the transfiguration. So, here, I want to, because we've got to, um, so, um, look at, um, on page 163, at the very end of, the, I don't want to, I don't want to, go into the deep, I don't want to read from the passages because I want to get to the last ones that are so important I believe. Dante is watching Master Adam and um, Sinon quarrel with each other. Now hold on to this. Master Adam is bloated from dropsy. What we get in these last scenes are falsifiers. People who counterfeited money or people who falsified lies did various kinds of falsifications. Adam is bloated and those of you who remember the Aeneid, remember Sinon was the guy who tricked the Trojans into bringing the horse into the wall. So he brought down a civilization, because what he did led to the destruction of Troy. And both of them are um, making cuts at each other. And um, Dante's fascinated, look on page 163, because this goes to the question of, Dante's growth. How much is he changing? Robert um, This is Canto 30, Doc, about 132. So. Virgil says to him, watching his student, um, unable to take his eyes off this scene, this spectacle, keep right on looking a little more and I shall lose my patience. I heard the note of anger in his voice and turned to him. I was so full of shame that it still haunts my memory today. Like one asleep who dreams himself in trouble, and in his dreams he wishes he were dreaming, longing for that which is as if it were not. Just so I found myself unable to speak, longing to beg for pardon, and already begging for pardon, not knowing what I did. Less shame than yours would wash away a fault greater than yours has been, my master said, and so forget about it. Do not be sad. How, how great is Virgil's magnanimity? He's ready to get really angry at Dante. What keeps him from it? Because Dante is so honest about his shame. He just openly says, sorry, what I did was not good. And Virgil <coughs> appropriately says, let it be. 
Um, okay, here's where... Now, hold on. Um, he comes to Baca on line, or in Canto 32. Remember, the, the souls in the lowest levels of um, hell in the final circuit, the circuit, the circle, are embedded in ice. And the, in the first section of that lowest level, the soul's heads are bowed down, which allows the, any grief in tears to come out. As they move th through it, the souls have their heads backwards, so any tears collect on their eyes and form crust. So it makes their punishment more painful. Um, Dante accidentally kicked Baca on page 177. This is Canto 32, line one way. And Dante asks him his name, and he won't give it to him. And Dante starts to pull his hair out, middle of the page. At that, I grabbed him by his hair back and said, You better tell me who you are, or else I'll not leave one hair in your head. And he to me, Go on and strip me bald and pound my stamp, pound and stamp my head a thousand times. You'll never hear my name or see my face. And then the souls nearby said, you know, call out Baca's name and Dante. But here, Dante is pulling out hair, and lots of critics respond to this by saying, Dante makes it clear that he's himself a sinner, and he's, no, he's not doing anything differently than the sinners themselves. Now just hold on to that, okay? Are they right or not? Going over, 180, page 180, this is Canto 33, line 15 or so. He comes across two souls joined together, like here, now hold on to the pair. Francisco and Paola at the very beginning, Diomedes and Ulysses, and now Ugolino and uh, Regario. Because we periodically get these pairs that, that are a parody of love, because even though they're joined together, they're really using each other to inflict punishment on the other, to carry out whatever anger or lust or whatever it is they're carrying in themselves. And Ugolino tells Dante this horrible story that, that he and Ruggiero, who's a bishop, remember that the greater number of people in hell are Catholics, and a large number of them are priests. I mean, Dante, Dante has had no illusions about it. I mean, think about the cleansing that our church is going through today. And, and the outrage on the part of parishioners who get so attached to priests that they just don't believe that the priests can do anything wrong. So this is Ugolino gnawing on Bishop Regaria's head. And Dante wants to know what's going on, and Ugolino tells him the story. That Regaria um, betrayed him, put him in the tower with his five nephews. They were there for a while eating, and then one day, when Ugolino was in the, he and, the, he and his nephews, they heard the, the door get nailed locked. And after that point, no food was given to them. Um, on page 181, when I awoke before the light of dawn, I heard my children sobbing in their sleep. You see, they too were there, asking for bread, with the thought of what my heart was telling me. Does not fill you with grief how cruel you are. If you're not weeping now, do you ever weep? Did I read this? Mm -hmm. I did read it. Mm -hmm. And I asked the question, yeah? When, when Ugolino gets to that point, and um, the kids start dropping off one by one, um, day by day, and then Ugolina reaches that point on page 182. By then gone blind, groped over their dead bodies, 
Though they were dead two days, I called their names. Then hunger proved more powerful than grief. And I ask you that question now. What, what happened here? Yes, okay, you know that he ate them. Okay. So here towards the end of the inferno, if, if you put together all the sin, we've been moving towards this. It's a, I think it's the most horrible scene in some ways in the whole divine. It, it involves a father or an uncle eating his children and then dying himself. Yeah, but what about the children, though? They're innocent. Why are they there? Wait, because the innocent die. Because the innocent die. Hold on. So, um, now, hold on. Just I've got two questions here. One has to do with Satan, and then I want to pick up this thing of pity because it's a really important thing. In the very last canto, um, Dante and Virgil climb down Satan's body. And what they see in Satan is three heads and Satan eating three men. So there are clear allusions to the Trinity, parodies of them, Brutus, Cassius, and uh, Judas. And that's it. Satan's there beating his wind, wings. Um, we heard a couple of cantos later, earlier that Dante could feel the wind and he wanted to know where it was from. It, it's clear here. It's what keeps the ice cold. I think the ice is an image of impersonality, that this is a cold, impersonal, mechanical thing. Um, so the end of the inferno shows Satan eating these men. In my, I, you may disagree, but in my mind, it's comic. That's the end of the inferno. The more dramatic scene for me is the Ugolino. It's a human being eating his children um, and telling this. Sad, we go, we get no story from Satan. We just see him. We do get this sad story from Ugolino. Hold on to that. Answer to the question about why were the children there? I don't think they are. He's just telling the story. Right. They were there because the family was. They were in the tower, but they weren't in hell. No, no, they're not. No, in hell. no, they were in the tower. Yeah. So it's because thing. innocent. They were put in the tower because they were a part of his family. So the family was being unjustly or betrayed and the kids were mm -hmm. so they're not physically eating the children it's just a no, no. no he, he ate them oh in the tower before he went oh it's in the story not he's in the story. hell he's here in hell because of what he did, what he did. right i understand oh okay now quick i want to do two things right now but i want to go quickly through some scenes where dante expresses his, you on page 70 just quick i'm going to do this really quickly turn to page 70 just even done. <laughs> 70, quick. Dante's looking at Pierre de Vanya. Remember, he was the suicide in the wood of suicide. Dante watches this guy and says, bottom of page 70, why don't you keep on questioning? And I said, and ask him for my part. What I would ask for, I cannot. Such pity chokes my heart. Jacobo, page 85. I'm just going to do this very, very quickly. Remember, he's talking to Jacobo in the, at the level of the homosexuals, the um, sodomites. And I, who share this post of pain with them, was Joko Purustucci. And for sure, my reluctant wife first drove me to my sin. Um, 86. And then I spoke repulsion, no, but grief for your condition spread through my heart. Uh, um, years will pass before it fades away. Dante is overcome with pity looking at him. Um, page 157. 
Dante has just looked at the sewers of discord. Remember uh, Mohammed and others, Bertram de Bourne with his head off and talking to him? Mm-hmm. Top of 157, the crowds, the countless different mutilations had stunned my eyes and left them so confused they wanted to keep looking and to weep. <coughs> 167, this is where he's so fascinated he can't take his eyes off of um, what he's seen and Virgil gets angry at him. It's not pity, but it's a moment of being so taken by something that he can't pull away from it. Um, now, at, uh, the scene that we just looked at on page 27, Bonte, Dante is talking to um, Boca and wants to know his name and Boca won't tell him. And Dante grabs his hair and starts pulling hair out of his head. And remember, critics look at this and say, he's no different than the sinners, he's just a vicious person. And then we get the Ugolino Regario scene. Dante watches this. Um, and then on page 184, I want to end with this. Dante meets. Um, this is Alberigio. And we learn from Alberigio that, um, and he's a friar. So many of these people have taken orders. He's a friar. He betrayed kinsmen at a meal, and because the betrayal was so bad, so heinous, that in the instant that he did it, his soul went immediately to hell, and his body was occupied by a demon. So we know that this priest, this friar, is walking around on earth, carrying out his clerical duties, inhabited by a demon. Okay? Um, page 185. But now at last give me the hand you prep, because Don- Abrigia said, I'll, I'll tell you what I want, what you want, but take these crusted, because remember his head's thrown back, take these off my eyes for relief. Dante promises to do it. Um, 184. I answered him, if this is what you want, tell me your name, and if I do not help you, May I be forced to drop beneath his eyes? He swears a vow. He answered that I am Frau Berigio. I am he who offered fruit from the evil orchard. Here dates are served me for the figs I gave. He betrayed his family, killed them, and then is here. Page 185. But now at last give me the hand you promised. You made a vow to free my, you know, the chunks of ice from my eyes to give some relief to me. Now fulfill your promise. But now at last give me the hand you promised. Open my eyes. It did not open them. To be mean to him was a generous reward. Oh, all you Genovese, you men estranged from every good at home with every vice, why can't the world be wiped clean of your race? Once again, city after city after city comes under condemnation by Dante because they're all given over too much to worldliness. Now, before we, before we leave hell, I've got two huge questions. Which to take first? Let's, let's take... Let's take pity first. Has Dante grown or not? And what's the danger? Let's just get clear here. What's the danger with pity? And and at the end, is how do we understand Dante? Are the critics right who say that he's no different from the sinners? He's just as bad? Making pulling out Baca's hair and then making a promise to Alberigio and going back on it? No. Not the least. Go ahead. If you start with pity, you're, what you're looking at is God's final judgment. 
on these souls. So, who are you to question what God's going to do? Number one, right? So I, I see it more aligning, getting rid of the weaknesses of humanity, and more aligning them with the judgment and the truth of God. Now we can look at that and say, "Oh, is it that mean or, or, or whatever?" But we're not driving the bus here, right? We're on the bus. Who's driving the bus? God is. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. We're, we're allowed to participate. We're not making the rules. So it's more aligning ourselves with the re- with the reality of God and punishment and sin. And it ain't pretty. And is everybody okay with that? Anybody? Any differences or any other thoughts about this? Gita. Where are you? <laughs> difference between empathy and pity. There's, there's, there's difference. There's a big difference. Go ahead, distinguish them. What's that? Well, empathy is to be open to understanding, trying to see how someone else feels. Pity is just, well, I pity you because blah 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 blah. You have to, have, you have to be empathetic. I think empathy is an important part, but you don't want to go down the. Pity because then you just go down and you're, you're, you're just trying to say, yeah, you're right. This happened to you. Da, da, da. You know what I'm saying? It's you, it's yeah. it can be a slippery slope. But at some point, both of those go away with the truth. Well, I'm not sure that empathy both would. Both if, those go if away because there is no there's nothing to be empathetic about. It is what it is. This is the punishment put forth by God. There's no question. No, I'm not Wait, talking about punishment. I'm just talking about being an empathetic. Let person. me differ with Mark for a second, if I can. <laughs> um, well, I don't have it. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, 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 I think everything you said was right, but I think the, the question is empathy is a little bit different. If what you're looking at is suffering for somebody who, who does not deserve that suffering, okay, um, is empathy wrong? No, it's not. If somebody's, if somebody's being mistreated and they're suffering, it's not wrong to empathize. Remember, because I think this goes to Mark's point, and I think he's right on. We're looking at final ends, and right now we're in a world of damnation. The, the people are there because they sinned, and they refuse to repent. They're not going to change. So the punishment they're receiving are absolutely due. To pity them is in some ways to go against God's will. Now, wait, I want to I take a minute with this because it's so important. We, we've been talking about this, those of you who have been around for a while. Go back to the Ilium, very beginning of our literature, absolute beginning. I want to just bring up two examples here. In, towards the end of the Iliad, Patroclus is so overcome by the losses in the Greek army. Remember, Achilles is withdrawn from the war, and when he would, because he's the greatest soldier, when he withdraws, the Greeks are devastated. The Trojans are winning. Patroclus said, "You hard-hearted man, at least let me put on your armor and go in your place." And Achilles says, "Go ahead, but the one thing you must not do is go to Troy. That's reserved for me." He puts on Achilles' armor, i.e. he tries to be Achilles, dies. Homer's description of him, pity, and I can't remember the phrase, but it's like a drunkard. Aristotle, the, the two emotions that have to be purged that makes a tragedy a tragedy are pity and fear. Why? Because those are the two emotions that are most capable of paralyzing our wills. When you get into drug rehab programs, what's the one thing that the that the staff members are most concerned about, particularly for women, mothers? The enabling effects of pity. Because, and here's St. Thomas, 
Mercy without justice is disaster. If you keep enabling somebody, you keep feeling sorry for their disasters or their difficulties, and you do nothing about them, all you're doing is encouraging them to keep doing what's harming them. So pity, pity is one of the. It, it's a natural. It's natural to feel pity for another. You cannot take it away. The difficulty is if it becomes a habit that that isn't mediated or curbed by other things, the truth or justice or. It, it becomes very, very harmful. Look at the modern world and the political right and left. The parties that identify them with um, marginal th are, think of themselves as the pity of, or the party of compassion. Look at all the wrongs that are done when they break laws in the name of compassion. I've said this over and over and over again. The, the greatest task we have as Christians, certainly as Catholics, is to bring... Um, justice and mercy together, love and reason. When you when, when we separate those two, we get into serious serious problems. And pity is one of the the most dangerous emotions for us as humans, because it can set up a habit of enabling. Now let me make a distinction. Um, let me make a distinction here. I was going to go to you because I thought empathies are really good because we can empathize with people who are suffering needlessly, unjustly, then it's not wrong. It's wrong here in Dante because these are fine lens. These right. are the damned. These are people who are not going to change. Right. If you're pitying somebody who's not going to change their behavior, then it's a serious question whether you're really helping that person. Here's the, here's the important distinction for me. Pity is the emotion we feel when we identify with the sufferings of another. What was Ahab's power over his crew? They all looked at themselves as victims because every one of them had suffered. Who in this room has not suffered? There's not a person here who's going to say no. Pity is the emotion we feel when we identify with the suffering of another. So our self is involved in it too much. Love has the good of another at heart. That's not the same thing. Because it means if we have the good of another at heart, we will say to that other at times when we do stop doing that, you can't do that anymore. When pity would arrest you, you won't say it. Is that clear? So I don't disagree with what you said. Go ahead. But what, how does that um, square with he grabs a hold of them and he kicks them and he beats them? <laughs> you know, I think you're supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner. That just looks like... But wait, okay, here, hold on. Okay, good. What what we did what we did a couple of minutes, what I did is jump outside of final ends into the world because I, I just found this so important in my own life, teaching literature and dealing with this um, because people get scrambled in this. I wanted to take a minute with it because I just think it's so important for us to make those distinctions because ordinarily we don't. So if we can put that aside for a second, the distinction that I make. Are we okay with that, what I'm saying about pity? You all, I'm sure all of us know, because we've all had to struggle with these things, all of us, every one of us. Let's take up Karen's question. If we, is everybody okay, or do you want to, do you want to go back? No. Okay, let's go ahead. So in one scene, Dante takes Baca's hair, rips it out, and he says to Abrigio, um, I swear um, I'll relieve you of your pain. And it goes back on his promise. And he knew to start with that he wasn't going to keep that promise. So, how do... Now, Karen. So, is Dante being 
Like right? lots of critics say, he's being like the sinner. Is he or or Karen? Here, let me go back because I'm so grateful that you said it that way. Are we supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin here in hell? Why not? Because it's final. You, we're asked to love a sinner because there's some hope of change. Yes, exactly that word. Here, that wait, wait, hold on. Let me just say, it, here. It's a final chose condition, and here's and here's what and Dante himself has said that, and Dante himself will say it. To be mean to him was a generous word, because in his mind, to to join God in punishing the sinner would be to put yourself more with God, because that sinner has turned away from God, chosen his condition. Um, it's impossible to love him given his state. We take that seriously, what you're describing, in our world, because we live in a world... Wait, and by the way, purgatory is going to open this to us. Because we live in a world in which there is motion and change. In Dante, we're not in that world any longer. We're in a world in which people have chosen to be. It's fixed. It's where they are. They're suffering punishments. Dante, as a Catholic, would have believed in that condition, and I hope we're clear on that, in that condition... To add to God's punishments is just to be with him. Dante happens to be instrumental because he's passing by and doing that. So. Well, he's proving yeah. a point because it's it's already determined. It's just making it very, for the reader yeah. to understand that. Yeah. The other thing would be, so if he wiped the tears, it wouldn't have helped him anyways. Because the pain and suffering... Well, it would have given a temporary relief. That's the point of it. Because that's otherwise he wouldn't have asked for it. He, he knows well, that so he would he be relieved. Would. Well, here, I just thought... He was being human, and here you are seeing all these people who were supposed to be good in hell because they weren't good like they were supposed to. And after a while, wouldn't you just get a little like, okay, I've had it with yeah. you guys. <laughs> I've been through eight levels of this thing. I want to know. I am just done with with you who who were supposed to. Well, he even said that actually with Jews and get rid of them and. So I just thought, doing was, whole race. I I thought mean, it was a human nature. I didn't think he was trying to align himself with God at all. I thought he just had it with these people. <laughs> 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 Frustrated, and he wasn't going to help him. He wasn't going to do anything. He was but I think in terms of the allegory, and we've been talking about the allegorical meaning, that if we look at, at what's happening in terms of a story and Dante's learnings, remember he had to go down. Right. This, goes, this goes to the other question. Well, no, it doesn't because we've still got Satan, but... If Dante's learning anything, it's, it's learning to order his emotions. If we look at hell, we see people who are making their own emotions greater than anything. Their emotions are a judge, a guide, a reference point. Dante's learning to adjust his emotions, his ideas, to what's in front of him. Virgil's teaching him all along. Because we've seen all along, when he saw Francisco and Paola, he was overwhelmed by the sight because when we see something happening to somebody who's very lovely and very tender, our, I think our first instinctive response is to feel bad. So he's learning to correct his vision. He's learning to see the nat- he's learning to see to understand the nature of sin, and he's learning to correct his heart to order his emotions. Because if he doesn't, and he goes back to the world susceptible to these things, oh. that he does not understand them, that he doesn't understand the nature of sin. And, and well, we're not there yet, but in the Paradiso, we're going to see it's going to become clear to him that he's got a calling. He's got to come back and write about this. That's a calling. So he's got the calling of a prophet, like 
Ishmael in Moby Dick, he's got to come back to show people so they're helped. So if he's going to do this, he's going to come back to the world, and he is, he's got to learn to make some changes in himself. Otherwise, why did, why did Virgil ask him to go down? Or Beatrice? <coughs> Remember, everything that's happening right now has the approval of God, um, Mary, Lucia, Beatrice. They're the ones that set this all in motion, in heaven. They're trying to help Dante align himself with heaven and learn to see things of the world more truthfully and to order his emotions in, in accord with what he sees. Can we stop? Well, here, last question. Go back to my because I've actually got two, two questions here. Um, some of you may not agree with this, but let me put it out there. When I read The Inferno, I always have, the Ugolino episode has a much greater, stronger, more intense, dramatic effect on me than watching Satan. Satan, to me, is silly. <clears throat> and I want to ask what, I want to get there in a minute, but take Dante Satan and compare him to Milton's. I don't wait on that. But anyway, when we look at Satan, he's in this ice. He's impotent. He can't do anything. Christ has defeated him. He's harrowed. Satan, I hope everybody's clear. Satan's defeated. Christ defeated him in death. He's defeated. He's impotent. So when I put the two scenes together, it seems to me that the Ugolino scene is far more horrific. That the Satan scene is anticlimactic. Nothing, there's no story. You know, we don't know. We just pass by and Dante comes out in purgatory and then we're going to start purgatory. Why did he do that? Why did he devote so much time in a way that would evoke our sympathies um, and treat the Satan episode so... But isn't Satan a part of the entire thing anyways? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so he really is the very first step to the last step. Satan is involved with it. So <clears throat> at the very end, it's just him in, as a, the individual item. But he's been a participant the whole way. Yeah, he's... yeah. What, um, still, why would he have made the Ugolino so much more dramatic? Why would he have spent so much more time on it than he does with Satan? Because he was a person. He was a regular person. I mean, so? That, that's the way I look at it, is that everything else you read about in Purgatory is about people, either known or legend. Yeah. Right. So they were people that you could actually write about, know about, know about, but what do you really as a human on Earth know about Satan? I mean, it's a literary thing. I mean, you can make it up in fiction, right? But you really don't know like you know the other ones. Mm -hmm. Those are stories that were passed down, or legend, or mm -hmm. great poets, or anything like that. I think you have more information with which to write a better story than you necessarily do when you say, let's write about Satan. Well, Satan's awful, but people have redemption. Satan, there's no redemption there, but people had a choice to repent, so that's a bigger... Problem. I think that goes direct. Remember um, Milton's argument. It's going to be the same. When you get into the Paradiso, Dante's going to make... So Dante made it several hundred years before Milton. But it is. When Satan and the angels, the rebellion angels, revolted, they did it in the first instance. As soon as they were created. There could have been time. It's just it's then. But they weren't deceived. Satan chose to revolt because he didn't want to be a creature. He didn't want to serve. 
and he didn't want to. He didn't want to be subordinate to God. Um, Adam and Eve fell. Eve was tricked. Adam chose. Um, so there's a much more complicated. They can be redeemed that others can't. I think to underscore this point, though, I, I want to say this. It, it seems to me what Dante's doing, we're going to see this in a minute when we start the Purgatorio, is he's um, underscoring the essential quality of freedom and human responsibility for humans. What he's showing us is that however much power Satan has, humans are responsible for what they do. Satan's tied up. We go, I mean, I said this a couple of weeks ago. We go through our life. Remember, I'd said we were in this water. We blame, we blame our parents. We blame this. We excuse. Dante is the, Dante and Shakespeare don't do that. They belong to a Catholic world that begins with the, the, the first principle of that world is sin. We cannot escape it. Humans are caught in it. But we are responsible for ourselves. Calvin took that away. The modern sciences have taken away. Not for Dante. We are responsible for ourselves. What we see in the I think the reason that is so dramatically powerful is it's his way of underscoring humans are responsible for their own choices. Satan may be there. We still have to resist him. You know, when we go through baptisms in the you know in the church in the rich I mean always I'm always so glad for it. You know, you know, when we get there's somebody baptized and everybody gets up and everybody does it. Do you renounce the glamour of yes. I will. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah, I mean, exactly. we are asked to say, or not, Renounce. I will, I will, I will, yeah. Mary, I will, I will. Um, does that mean we always do it? We fail a lot. But, but we do it believing we're responsible for what we do. Otherwise, why make the efforts, or why suffer the way we do? If you believe that it's all done and we're, and we're predestined, that whole quality, that human dimension of our free will that God gave us, gone. So the beauty of literature, one of the beauties of literature for me, always has been, is that it's the sense of adventure and romance that's part of literature depends on man's free will. Take that away, if man has no free will, there is no adventure, there is no romance, there are no trials, nothing to undergo, no reason to turn to God. The beauty of literature is that it constantly holds before us these great adventures where What's at stake is our lives, the choices that we make, what we do. If anybody's going through life without some sense that this whole thing is an adventure, I don't know what we're doing. And everything about the modern world once puts, puts us to sleep. Anyway, my own sense of this ending is that I think Dante gives it the dramatic force that he does is a way of underscoring the essential role of free will in the affairs of man. That we, we are responsible for our choices. Look at Satan at the end. I mean, he's a ridiculous figure. Now, let me end with it. Take, take, what do you do with Milton, Satan, and Dante, Satan, before we leave hell? So I'm just interested. I don't want to take a lot of time, but I'm just interested in what you make of all of that. Big contrast. Milton portrays him as kind of the hero and you know, glamorizes him and not so with Dante. Yeah. Remember that I, this is such a here. Put this in at the very beginning. Satan's presented as this noble hero, and we're asked to repeatedly we're asked to feel for him. You know when he's making his speeches with the demons in the lake and 
repeatedly. There are times when he seems like he wants to repent. I, I get bothered by all of that. But, but the end of Satan in the Paradise Lost is remember that all the demons are turned into frogs and serpents. That, so we can see that ultimately the errand is to be humiliated. So this, what begins as this noble heroic figure ends up this toad, you know, and and lots of critics argue that that's way that's Dante's way of um, of revealing the the nature of pride in his reader that we can get so caught up in believing that we're going to do these great things without seeing where we're actually going. So there's that. That I, I don't know what to call it, that problematic tension or difficulty with Milton, because for most of Paradise Lost, you've all experienced it now, there was, we were going on this journey with this Satan who's the head of... In Dante, Satan was very matter-of-fact. There wasn't anything about it, but here it is, here's what's going on, let's move on. There wasn't any discussion, there wasn't any yep. to reason about it, trying yep. to understand it, yep. it was just... And I, I noticed that. It's just very matter of fact. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing As you go into <laughs> and I wonder what the difference is for readers in the modern world. First of all, just for readers who've read Paradise Lost and never read Dante, I mean, it just makes me wonder how attractive that glamour is, even if it finally answered. Because remember, I, re I read critics who were so taken by Satan, um, didn't believe in God. In fact, they, I remember, I, I read these to you guys, that some of them said um, they didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in God. It was much easier for them to believe in Satan because he, at least heroic, could suffer. And you know, So think, think about the implications of holding up this noble figure, even, even he's going to have a bad end. And Dante's coming to him in, in Mark's way of putting it. Well, there he is now. Let's get on. <laughs> so, um, okay. Any last thoughts on the Inferno before we start the Purgatorio? The nice thing is that going forward, you guys can sleep for a while. <laughs> you can, you could go to bed at night and Susan, I think I told you this, didn't I? That when I, I in all my, you know, undergraduate years, I, I told you this as an English major. We didn't read Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, or Divine, because they belonged to the foreign languages department. It wasn't a part of. What a what an extraordinary! If you think about it, what a loss! What a loss! It wasn't until I went to UD because of the nature of the program that they put it all together. God, it's just extraordinary. Anyway, we were reading the, the Divine Comedy, and one of my friends, we were sitting in a lounge together, and we used to talk, the people in the graduate program used to talk a lot. The woman who ran it was just in, gathered people together to talk about this. Uh, it was so important. I told you, he got really frightened because he started worrying for some of his relatives <laughs> when he started reading Hell. And I remember I told Doc that she should read it because it was just an amazing work and she read it and when she finished with the Inferno her first response was it's so good to hope again so good to hope <laughs> okay can we leave I'm just going to set out um, I'm not sure that we'll get to some concrete things but let me set out a couple of things here 
A couple of really important things here. Okay, a number, <laughs> a number of really important things here. Did you two behave? Um, number, number of important things here. Um, first, when Dante and Virgil emerge on the shores of Purgatory, it's Easter morning. So remember, the, the Dante's voyage began on Monday, Thursday, went into the depths of hell. He's emerging from hell on Easter morning, which is his way of saying that, hopefully like most of us, when we go through these conversions year by year, that when Easter comes, that's a moment when we believe we are risen again. So that, and the renewal is important. If, if we believe we're saved forever, there's no problems. I mean, that's the Calvinistic belief. We're, once you do it, you're saved. And, Catholic believes we can lose ourselves at any point. That these rituals, these sacraments are important because they strengthen us. Year by year, we're changing. Graces are helping us to become better. So when Dante emerges, it's, a, it's symbolic of that moment when the soul is renewed. That it's learned to see sins, it's passed through them, it's entering on a period of penance. Of, or a joy of entering the world in time. So he's left that mechanical world. Remember the Boethius' image of the circle. He's left that world of fate where everything's determined, it's fixed, it, it's unchanging. Everybody in hell, they're, not, they're in an eternal now. A they're, it's in a wheel, a machine. Like they can't do anything. For the first time since we began this several weeks ago, we're in time. And for Dante, this is a notion that's foreign to us, for Dante, time is love. We're moving with God. We've returned to time. We're out of final ends again. And I want everybody to think about that because that's time is time according to a modern scientist couldn't be more different. In a Euclidean or um, Newtonian world, you know, the clock image for Newton. That's not what's going on here. Dante <coughs> for Dante Time is an expression of God's love. It, 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 it allows us to move with him and change. So that's a very different notion of time from what we get from a science. But that's what's happening here. So we've come out of the darkness, <clears throat> we're in the sunlight, and people are moving again. And all of them are changing. In hell, everybody's in a self-centered world. They're absolutely in their own private world. In purgatory, people are working together. At every level, they're helping each other. And wherever Dante goes, he sees people in, largely in groups. Okay, So we've entered a new world. And in one sense, one sense, I think, remember we've been talking about the importance of the image of the city from Enoch on, or from Enoch on. Purgatory is an image. Remember St. Augustine, we talked about this before. According to St. Augustine, there's two cities. The city of God and the city of man. And there's this peregrine, peregrine, <coughs> peregrine city, which means a pilgrim city, a pilgrim, a peregrine. It's a city in motion. 
That was his image of the church on earth. But that, that city is on its way. We're a part of a journey. So purgatory is an image, I believe, of the church. What we are all called to do while we're on this earth. Purgatory shouldn't wait until we're dead. Purgatory should be alive. We should be, we should be actively trying to put our way, our sins away and move with God's grace. To do it, you know, when Mark described that thing that when he pulled his hair or um, that he was working more in accord with God's justice. If that's what we're doing every day, we're moving closer to that still point center. And our hearts are quieter. We're more ready, I think, hope, <laughs> we may be, hopefully, if we have to, to martyr ourselves, to put away the world, to be with God, to step away from those things that keep us from. <coughs> so, purgatory is an image, in one sense, <coughs> of the church, of people working together to undergo a purification, a change of heart. Um, like hell, purgatory itself is divided into three. You can, and there's various ways you can do this. You can see there's anti-purgatory here at the bottom. It's the condition before. Anti-purgatory consists of the um, excommunicated and the negligent and the preoccupied. So even there, there's three sections. Um, these are people who have to put off active penance because they delayed too long in life. They took for granted the work of penance. So they're having to wait now before they can start actual penance. Purgatory itself is divided into three. So there are threes within threes. There's that Trinitarian principle again. Um, Purgatory is a process of purification. It's, um, it's our efforts to get past those attachments to the world that keep us from being holy. Remember, I said this before, purity of spirit cannot be racial, cannot be ethnic, can't be Russian or worth, I mean, it can, but it shouldn't keep us from one another. Can't be sexual, can't be national. It's Catholic. It means we're one with everybody, with God. So our, our work of purgatory is to purify us of all those things that keep us from each other and from God. So anti-purgatory is that condition of waiting. Um, and, it, and it depends on what the fault was here. I'll get into that in a second. And then purgatory proper starts here on the mountain. And it's at this point that Dante actually begins to climb the mountain. Remember that he wanted to climb the beginning. Oh, the gate? Um, yeah. yeah, with the gate. Now take a look here, because this is really important. Like hell, um, Dante um, enters into penance proper unconscious. He's taken up on eagle's wings into purgatory proper. Why is that? Because remember, like hell, when Dante entered hell, he entered it unconsciously. It's Dante's way of showing that the first sins that we commit are, are more a part of the fall, its effect on us. Long before we ever become conscious of committing a sin, we've done things that are already sinful. It's a part of our unconscious. The poets were always aware of the unconscious before Freud ever got a hold of it. Um, 
he'll, he'll start penance. Um, he's asleep and the eagle, the eagle will bear him up. I want to stop with this for a second because I just think it's so crucial. I think most of us, you know, when we have that moment when we say, I want to undergo penance or I'm going to go to, I'm daughter says, I'm going to go to confession. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us, I think, think that thought's my own. Just like I want to go to work or find a job. What Dante's showing is nobody comes to that on their own. They only come to it because they've had a supernatural supernatural help. Some grace is working. And it's not like we hear the Spirit whispering in our ear. You know, it's so much a part of us that we we don't think of it as anything other than a, something of our own. Dante's making clear that's a that's the beginning of a supernatural movement. You don't make a if that's not clear, think about how many people don't even think, don't want to go to penance, don't want to go to the church, don't believe they need it. What Dante's showing us is this is the beginning of a supernatural movement. It only begins with help. It's a grace. So, I I hope that's clear because that stuns me. I think most of us think our thinking's our own, but. Because it, we we don't hear some voice or some we don't get a a knock on the head saying wake up and listen you know the, the 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 spirit the spirit is so understated he's so reticent in us he's so quiet he always solicits rarely hits us over the head we get those thoughts as our own that is anything in the direction of holiness comes from him. Because most of our desires are elsewhere. So, like hell, Dante begins a movement unconscious, but now he's entering into something. This is, this is a further stage of his journey. And what he will encounter here is a trinity of structures. The, at the first stage of purg- purgatory are um, the love of evil itself. Pride, envy, wrath. Not anger, wrath. Sloth and avarice, gluttony and lust. And notice that lust is the last one because that's the one that most resembles love. Now what's the difference between them? In this first stage, the souls, the shades, are doing penance um, for wanting to bring evil to another human being. What's at issue in purgatory are disordered loves. We believe God made nothing evil. Protestant believes that that after the fall, we live in essential depravity. Our essence is depraved. We are depraved. We don't. We believe that we're wounded, that we have free will. And what we're stuck with is learning to order our loves, to make our loves better. Okay? In the lower stages, the, the souls are doing penance for disordered loves, loving evil to come to another. So in pride, we want to put ourselves above others. We will use them. In envy, we want to see somebody put down because they have something we don't. In wrath, we want to see harm come to somebody who's harmed us. So in the lower levels of purgatory, we're loving an evil for somebody else. What's Wait one second. Wait one second. So these are loving evil. What's loved up here is good. This is what's loved here is evil to come to somebody to bring evil. What's loved up here is good. 
Sloth is not loving the good adequately. It's too tepid, it's too weak. We don't love something enough to, to move ourselves. Things, food, sex are all good. They're natural. They're good things. The love of those goods is excessive. And they have to be curbed. So in the bottom third, it's loving the evil to come to somebody. Inadequate love. Love of goods too much. That's the purgatory. And like, and like um, um, what David said, what, you know, in the same way that Satan's at the core of all of all the sins that take place in hell, what's behind all of the sins in purgatory is pride, making ourselves more important than others. So, so that's that's the um, the journey, the stage of purgation that Dante's going to undertake now. Having learned to see sins, now he's going to see what can be done about them. How can you do anything about them if you don't learn to see them? So the first condition is to go down to see our sins so we know we're doing what's wrong. The second is once we're shown them, to begin to do something about them. Sorry. So in purgatory are people that are repenting but they still haven't gotten there yet? Mm -hmm. Is that the mm -hmm. whole gist? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you put it. The other, the other way of putting this, because I want to put it more starkly. Uh, everybody in hell is a sinner. Everybody in purgatory is a sinner. Yeah. Okay? One is an absence of sin. The condition of being in either of those places is sin. The difference is in purgatory, people want to get rid of those sins. In hell, we've seen this. People are fixed. They're not going to change. All right. Okay, that, that makes sense. So there's, so there's hope for people in purgatory. Absolutely. Yeah, the goal is to get that is, I mean, that, up them out. And that's, and then, that's why it's a go. Yeah. If you make it in, you'll make it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Frank, what did you say? If you make it in, you'll make, make it up. Right. It may take a while. Yes. You're yes. going to get there. Just, you're going to find out when we get there. Stasius, I think, was there for 1,500 years. <laughs> but he's still, you know, he's still. So. There's no such thing as time. <laughs> well, it's, well, in purgatory, there is. Because remember, t we're, we're in time. And, and time is important because it's partly a measure of the penance. So in, in the, in the anti-purgatory, at the very low, the very, one of the lowest stages, one of the souls that we're going to encounter has to be there 30 times the number of years he put off because he's got to answer all that time that he was given that he wasted. So time is going to be a very real part of this. People are going to move forward to the degree to which they really give themselves or be held back to the degree to, to which they do. Because Dante is showing everybody was responsible for what they're doing. Um, <laughs> well, hopefully... Two, two last things and then we're going to stop. end up in the higher part of purgatory so for the less time. Here, two quick things. Here, can you hold on? I'm gonna, two quick things and then we're going to... Two quick things. Two quick things. Hold on. One is the, the mode of knowledge. Listen to this, really. The mode of knowing in hell is irony. This is so important. The mode of knowing in hell is irony. The people there don't have a sense of irony. Right? We all know that. None of them. The irony comes because Dante's there and he can see what they don't. 
So as we move through the inferno, we're aware of ironies everywhere. Irony is the mode of knowing. That changes in the purgatorio. The mode of knowing in the purgatorio is wonder and humility. Um, at every level that Dante passes through, whenever he meets people, they're going to be full of wonder because Dante's got a body and they don't. It's going to throw out the sunlight and what's going on. But it's Dante's way of showing here, this is so that wonder should be a part of everything we do. Christ said, "Be as you know." We get to a point where we think we know it all. The souls in heaven or in hell are there because there's nothing for them to know. They know it all. What's going on in purgatory is that people are learning. They're open. They're full of wonder. So we're in, we're in a world in which time exists, hope exists. People are changing. They're helping each other. And what motivates them now is wonder, not, not irony. They don't know something better than somebody else, like the souls in hell. Um, I can't remember the other one. It's chased out of me. Um, one second, wonder. No, that's, we'll start. Um, the most important thing that Dante shows us in these opening cantos is how important human responsibility is. The people in anti-purgatory are, are situated where they are in proportion to the responsibility they took for their actions. They're far, the, farther, they're, the ones who are farther away are there because they neglected things. The ones who are closer are those who took responsibility for their actions sooner. So over and over and over again, picking up what we said in the Inferno, Dante believed every human being is responsible for what he does. So the journey for Dante, like Paul, is to win our own freedom, to put those sins away that keep us from being who God gave us to be. Purgatory is that stage of the journey where we do these things to help us gain that freedom. Okay. Okay, we, we'll start looking at the characters and start moving up purgatory next week. <laughs>